0: Hello, this is Todd. This is Kathy. And this is Conversations with People We Love, brought to you by BU Incorporated.
1: On this show, we talk with authors, and we talk with teachers, we talk with friends, and anybody that has a story to share that can help us open our heart and be more aware of who we
0: are. Hope you enjoy the show. So there's a set of complaints we hear about young people these days, that they're entitled, overpraised and grow up thinking they're more special than they really are. But in his new book, The Myth of the Spoiled Child, writer Alfie Cohn says that the negativity thrown at permissive parents and the supposedly narcissistic kids they raise are unfounded. Cohn says parents should work to raise kids with high self-esteem and that the fashionable belief that kids must develop grit and self-discipline through failure and suffering is unproven and often counterproductive. So we have Alfie on with us today. Alfie, hello, how are you? Nice to be here. Nice to have you. Um, I have literally pages of notes that my wife got mad at me for <laughs> saying, "Listen, we need to, we need to, t-
1: we need to tighten this up, a tighten bit.
0: this up a bit." He, he would have
1: kept you on for three hours. Yes, so we so, can't do
0: that. And I've read a handful of books, but this is one that certainly spoke to me as much as any other. So I'm really excited. But I just kind of want to jump right into it. Um, I don't know if it was your first chapter or what, but uh, you talked a lot about how we as adults romanticize the good old days. And you also talked about how the research has been going uh, for years and years about that. And I was wondering if you can expound a little bit about what you mean when adults say that they romanticize the good old days.
2: Well, I begin the book by surveying a bunch of books and articles and blogs these days that claim that kids are more spoiled and parents are more permissive and indulgent than ever before. Uh, Unlike the good old days, when uh, parents knew how to set limits uh, and disciplined their kids and the kids knew their place and so on. And then what I do is I back up a generation or so to show that people then were saying exactly the same thing, though of course not on blogs, and again contrasting the way things were then with the really good old days. And I go back another step and show that people were saying exactly the same thing. Um, one of my favorite quotes in the Atlantic magazine, which sounds like it could have been written yesterday, talks about parents who are afraid to um, to uh, tell their kids wholeheartedly what they have to do, and as a result, kids are terribly spoiled, and that that appeared in The Atlantic in 1911. So one one form of, of countering these, these ridiculous claims is to show that uh, people have been saying the same thing forever, uh, and there's absolutely no data to do that. But your question gets at a second critique of these claims, which is not just that they're untrue because people have been saying the same thing, but that by referring to those days when parents were stricter disciplinarians, more authoritarian, um, and kids did what they were told, even if that was true, to characterize those as the good old days um, invokes a very frightening or at least troubling model of what good parenting consists in um, and what we want for our our kids. Uh, To think that mindless obedience on the part of children or top-down control, my way or the highway, uh, is what we should be trying to reclaim, if it ever existed, um, is counter Mm -hmm. to what is in the best interest of children, and I argue ultimately our whole culture.
1: I couldn't agree more. And, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about uh, warm, responsive parenting, which I know is the language that you use in your book. And why do you think parents confuse warm, responsive parenting with being overindulgent and being permissive? Where, where's that confusion?
2: Well, first, people tend to think dichotomously about many things. If it's not this, it must be that. Um to some extent, that's sort of sloppy thinking. Uh, but to some extent, too, uh, it serves a purpose because it's, it's a, it takes a lot more care and talent and time and courage uh, to work with children to solve problems together to provide unconditional support and guidance, while at the same time supporting kids autonomously and helping them to become better decision makers. In short, to reduce the control we have over kids. So it's much more convenient to suggest that the only two alternatives, the only two ways you can raise kids are uh, by controlling them or by being completely permissive and uh, hands-off. And this is very convenient to people on both sides um, because they can point to the other alternative, which they identify as the only alternative, as being noxious uh, and obviously uh, unacceptable. And so that just leaves you doing what you're doing, you know. Um, and a lot of parents, too, simply have never been invited to think about what a working-with alternative to the mainstream doing-to model would look like and how it plays out. You know, what does it mean? Most of us have not really had good models to work with, to understand um, that it's it's possible to solve problems together because the top-down control model using rewards and punishments, including praise, to get compliance, is by far the dominant model, uh, not only in families but in schools and in workplaces, for that matter. And then I guess another reason that people confuse those two is because they're encouraged to uh, by those around them. People who feel the need to control their children and whose primary uh, um, objective is to get kids to obey um, find it very upsetting, very threatening to consider the possibility of asking kids rather than telling them mm-hmm. and so there are no gradations for people like that and so if they see a parent say you know to a child let's figure out why this is happening and uh, what we can do about it uh, well that's not the parental model they're used to and so they say you're letting that kid uh... run all over you or you or that kid has you wrapped around his finger um, you need to take a stand and we hear this as parents from our own parents and in-laws from complete strangers you know and of course indirectly from um, most of the parenting books and tv and radio shows so it, it takes an enormous amount of perspective and insight to be able to back up and say the fact that i'm treating my kid with respect doesn't mean that I'm not being a good, active, involved, supportive parent and giving guidance.
1: That's so beautiful. And, you know, I work with a lot of moms, and they've been able to figure out that as a child, they didn't feel listened to. And so when they grow up and have their own children and their children don't listen to them, it like re-triggers that pain for them or they they feel just as out of control as they did as a kid. So they perpetuate a cycle rather than recognize that maybe a new cycle needs to be developed or a new way of parenting or just a new, it's not even parenting, a new way of relating to this human being that, you know, that you are in charge of raising and supporting. And so it's been interesting to work with people who, when they recognize that, when that when that when it switches for them, a whole new relationship is formed with their child.
2: Right, yes, that that makes sense. So I think what you're doing is fleshing out my idea of reproducing the limitations. Uh, that we carry forward from our own childhoods and helping to explore how
1: that happens.
0: Absolutely. Well, and uh, staying on the same topic, um, we talk to a lot of parents and we say, you know, uh, they're like, well, this is effective to, to scream at your kids gets them to shut up or something like that. And first of all, that may be true, but at what expense does that happen? And then it's also short term in that you can, you know, eventually you're going to have to scream louder and louder and louder, and the kid is going to shut you out. So um, we talk a lot on the show about how fear is not a, a, a good way to motivate. And yet there's still so many parents out there that use fear as a tactic to control their kids
2: or equally problematic but even harder to recognize they say good job I like the way you dot 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 or offer them stickers or extra dessert or other doggy biscuits for complying so it may be the case that there are fewer parents these days who are using fear and coercion and physical violence like spanking on kids Um, instead they give them colorful dinosaur stickers you know or or use a star chart for peeing in the potty, or give them money for getting a good report card, uh, or simply lavish them with, uh, with verbal rewards, like praise, and think that they have taken a big step forward, because they're not like their parents who used to swap their behinds. But in fact, very little has changed in terms of the ultimate goal, which is still compliance they're still asking, how do I get my kid to do what I want? Maybe I'll use a slightly nicer-looking technique than my parents did, but they're not shifting from the question of of how do I get my kid to do what I want, to the question what does my kid need, Mm -hmm. and how can I meet those needs? Praise and rewards distract us from meeting kids' needs as surely as fear and punishment do.
0: So I want to zero in on that because I wrote down in my notes that you're not a fan of— pun- and, and if I'm overgeneralizing, please correct me, but punishment and rewards are not an effective way to uh, help your children. So what I was hoping you can help me understand is if you're not going to do punishment and rewards and be as specific as you can, what techniques or is there a technique to use in lieu of you know the carrot and the stick?
2: Well, uh, let me, by way of overview, say first, all of this and most of what we've been talking about so far are uh, associated with an earlier book I wrote called Unconditional Parenting. That's a book in which I addressed this head-on, talked about what's wrong with the doing-to approach, how to make a working-with approach work. The newer book that um, you had indicated an interest in, uh, The Myth of the Spoiled Child, is not a how-to book about parenting, Mm -hmm. nor even primarily a book of critique of current parenting techniques. It's a book of cultural criticism that talks about general assumptions about children, what they're like and the way they're raised, um, that talks not only about the false assumptions of permissiveness and spoiling and that kids are narcissistic, but also talks about um, claims that parents who supposedly are not only permissive, but somehow at the same time are supposed to be guilty of overparenting or helicopter parenting. And I go on to a number of other beliefs in, involving education and sports, where we assume kids um, are over-celebrated and think they're special, and I try to get to the ideological core of those false beliefs. But that said, I'm, I'm happy to try to give um, a brief accounting of Um, what I argued about in in an earlier book. Um, And to address that, I begin by, by repeating, it's not a matter of looking for a new technique. If I'm not supposed to use rewards and punishments, which can never get anything beyond temporary, resentful obedience, and does so at a terrific cost, then what am I supposed to do? My point is that we need to ask about the goal. In other words, how do I get my kid to, uh, uh, to eat her string beans if I'm not allowed to, uh, to withhold dessert, um, offering that as a reward for eating the vegetables or, in effect, the absence of dessert as a punishment? Because that's the interesting thing about rewards and punishments. One is always sort of like the, the mirror image of the other. They're two sides of the same coin. They're not two different strategies. Um, And my response is, I'm not going to give you another technique that's nicer um, or more effective for getting the kid to eat the string beans. I'm going to take a step back and ask, why, if you're presenting your kids with essentially nourishing foods most of the time, nutritious options, why would you ever think you need to compel your child to eat a specific food? And what are the long-term implications of that for your relationship with the child or the child's relationship to eating? That's a very different approach than, oh, here's a new trick to get your kid to eat the string beans. The same thing is true of many other things. How do I get my kid to clean up his room, which is a pigsty, if I'm not supposed to punish him or reward him for doing it? Answer, not a new technique that's nicer and groovier, but rather, why should your child be compelled to keep the only place on the planet that is hers? up to your standards of cleanliness. In other words, we have to have the courage to ask, if a kid isn't doing what we're, we want, is it possible the problem is with what we want? Hmm. And well, that points us in a very different direction from looking for a new technique for well, getting compliant.
0: And my wife Kathy is nodding her head, so I'm going to let her <laughs> talk in a second, but I'm, I'm guilty of the first thing you said, because when my kids started eating solid foods, I'd be like, okay, time to eat your turkey or time to eat your ham or whatever, And then somebody told me one time—I just thought, hey, you need your protein. You need your protein. And then our friend said, well, what if your daughter doesn't want to eat meat? And it never even occurred to me because I grew up on meat and potatoes. And I just thought it, it was like a reframe for me. Like maybe this kid isn't supposed to be eating ham or turkey or steak or something like that. Well, I don't
2: know that's supposed to be, but your kid doesn't like those options right now, so fine, you offer peanut butter, you mm. know, or <laughs> or vice versa. Um, but the more general point here is that in answer to the question, you know, if not punishments and rewards, then what? Um, we begin, what I say, I offer like a dozen basic guidelines or something like that in my earlier book, Unconditional Parenting, for thinking about what I think of as uh, an unconditional and supportive approach to parenting, what I'm calling a working with view. And the first step is to do what I just suggested, you know, rethink your requests. But from there, we go on to bring kids in on making decisions. You know, as I like to say, kids learn to make good decisions by making decisions, yeah. not by following directions, um, And when kids screw up and do stuff that's really nasty and unacceptable, we treat it as a problem to be solved, not an infraction to be consequenced. So even the way you look at it differs from the traditional view, not just what you do in response. And you support kids unconditionally, so they know that even when they screw up or fall short, they know that your love for them, your care is never in doubt. That sounds nice and Many people nod when they hear that, but the reality is that challenge is a, a whole array of of, uh, of parenting advice we're given that amounts to conditional parenting with things like time out on the one hand, when you don't like what they've done, which where you're literally from their perspective, turning off your love temporarily, um, uh, and on the other hand, uh, praise, which is the ultimate in saying that my attention and acknowledgement and approval are contingent on your doing a job that I've decided is good. Mm-hmm. Um, so praise is the opposite of what kids need if they need unconditional support. So uh, there's uh, many possible responses to the question, you know, if not punishments and rewards, then what? But it really all begins with rethinking the long-term goals mm-hmm. um, or thinking in long-term in the long-term rather than the short-term. That's why when I give a, a, a talk, a to parents, I almost always begin by asking, what are your long-term goals for your kids? How would you like them to turn out? Pick a word. You know, and wherever I go, I get people saying pretty much the same thing. And then what I do for a living basically is to say to people, you say you want this, so why are you doing that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, One of the things we always talk about is we talk to parents or kids about be yourself, you know, be who you are. And when I say that to parents about their children... When I say, you know, all these things you're saying, it's just so wonderful, you know, you know, talk to your kids, have a relationship with them, you know, ask them how they feel about things. It makes parents so uncomfortable. They have, as you say in the book, a general distrust of children. They believe if they allow them to, quote unquote, be themselves, that there's going to be anarchy and chaos. So can you speak to that? Why does our society have a general distrust of children?
2: Well, um- I don't know where it comes from, but I know that it it runs deep and it goes pretty far back. Um, kids aren't subject to the same constraints that adults have been socialized to acquire. Um, they're messy and they're loud and uh, they're not very good at uh, perspective-taking yet, that is, imagining how things affect others, and they're uncensored and they tell you what they think and want and um they're inconvenient Mm
0: -hmm. you know yeah
2: that's why you know i tell parents if 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 you're if you're looking for for quiet and order then you know maybe you should have raised tropical fish instead of having children (laughs) um but but part of it i think goes even deeper than that because i think our distrust of kids uh, reflects a deeper distrust and cynical view about human nature itself, where there's really a belief that uh, people have to have um, compassion and generosity and concern about others and responsibility and uh, interest in, in doing well uh, those tasks that we are set for us, that all of this is, um, is unnatural and has to be artificially induced, and that left to their own devices, most people would get nothing accomplished and would be selfish and competitive and aggressive and territorial, lazy, stubborn, and so on. Uh, I wrote a a whole book challenging this a long time ago called The Brighter Side of of Human Nature, which is a pretty scholarly book that looks at at decades' worth of evidence having to do with altruism, and empathy, and aggression, and so on. And it's a book I don't mind telling you that has sold dozens of copies. (laughs) Um, But um, I I really think there's something to this, this deeply conservative distrust of people uh, that is as much theological as as psychological, uh, that says that basically, you know, if if a kid does something nice and shares his toys, uh, that was a fluke. Yeah. Uh, and it's not going to happen again on its own unless you carefully reinforce it by saying, good job. Stephen, I really like the way you you shared your Lego set with Billy when he was over. You know, you're such a good sharer. Good job. Keep it up. Let's celebrate that. You know, that it often has this sort of squeaky, high-pitched, unnatural, treacly sound to it. Totally. Um, But underneath, you're looking at a belief in original sin, Mm -hmm. or secular equivalent. You're you're saying, I don't trust that that would happen again, so I've got to give you an artificial reason to share next time, namely to get my approval. And so there's all kinds of layers of stuff we we could challenge um, about this, as well as all sorts of of reflections... um, of 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 those uh, of those deep beliefs that show up where we least expected. I mean, it's sort of counterintuitive, you know, to look at these uh, you know preschool teachers who are so squeaky um, and praising the children, and to see, oh my gosh, underneath that squeaky praise is a very dark view of children and perhaps of people.
0: There's a part in the book, I think, Elfie, that you uh, came out and wrote a a blog or something, and I think it was about praise, and I think you even said your words get—because in the book, you talk a lot about how the research says one thing, and then a writer will misconstrue the entire point of what the research stated. Did that happen to you? Did you say something, and it kind of went around, and then it became a different message than what you intended?
2: Yes, praise is a very tricky topic, um, uh, because many people who are critical of praise see me as an ally, when in fact I'm critical of it for a very different reason. And so a lot of people just assume praise is good, and uh, it's, it's encouraging to kids, and why in the world would you, I understand why you wouldn't punish kids, but why in the hell wouldn't you tell them you approve of them? And that's where I have to lay out a couple of of challenges one is praise, like other rewards, and it's just a verbal reward, is part of the whole bribe and threat carrot and stick approach that is more about manipulating kids to do what we want um, and the alternative to praise is not criticism, nor is it sullen silence. Um, the alternative is to support their interests and do a lot less telling and praising and a lot more asking and responding and then secondly i came across i mean i had written that years ago about what's wrong with looking at evidence showing for example that children who are praised a lot are somewhat less generous than their peers because they've learned that the reason to help someone is not because it makes that person feel good but because i'm going to get something out of it namely a patronizing pat on the head And then years later, I came to realize there was a second problem with praise, which is that, as I mentioned a minute ago, it represents conditional parenting. kids come to learn that I'm only a good person to the extent I've done something that pleases or impresses the person who's praising me. Um, So that's another one. But along comes a new cultural movement here, which is deeply conservative, that says, the reason praise is bad is because we do it too much or give it too easily and kids now feel, you know, they don't have to do hardly anything and somebody's going to say, oh, aren't you terrific? And we're making kids feel special for nothing when they haven't earned it. And we should be more selective and sparing with our praise so it has a more powerful effect on them and they feel, uh, chronically Um, insufficient, so they have to work harder in order to earn the praise. And that's 180 degrees opposed, from my view, and that view is consistent with a lot of other conservative claims about kids who get trophies just for showing up, and uh, there's great inflation, they hardly have to do anything to get an A, and they feel too good about themselves without having, uh, being able to point to accomplishments. Uh, This is the conservative view that I that I take apart in the new book, The Myth of the Spoiled Child. But it it takes a few minutes to explain why I'm arguing that praise is problematic. That the problem isn't that we're being too indulgent of kids or praising too easily. The problem is praise, like other strategies of control, um, is used for our convenience and undermining the very characteristics we say we're
0: trying to promote. Well, I'm so glad you brought up the trophy thing. For some reason, I feel like that is like the third rail when we talk about parenting. It's funny how emotionally charged when you talk about participation trophies is. And to be honest with you, Mike, my, I, I don't really care that much either way. If everybody gets a trophy, great. If you wanted to give it to just the winners, that's fine too. But I just, I find it so interesting that people are so emotional about taking it one side or the other on that. And I just wonder if you could speak speak to that
2: yes there is a fury here red-hot fury um where i mean on blog posts dealing even with other questions having to do with children um somebody's bound to stick in a a, a snide reference to how these days kids get trophies for just anything and just for the phrase uh, trophies just for showing up which is of course only one way to put that just for that phrase, that wording, there's hundreds of thousands of hits if you Google it. Um, and it gets to the issues that I'm trying to take apart, which I think consist of two things in particular. Uh, a, a value of, well, let me back up a step. If you ask people, what do you think is wrong with this? Why are you so determined that, you know, the little trinket only goes to the conquering heroes? Uh, They will argue that you have to reward people for excellence and conspicuously avoid rewarding people who didn't reach that level of excellence, otherwise nobody would be motivated to do anything. Um, And there, you know, there's tons of research that I've written about in the past arguing that that's not the case. That, in fact, rewards undermine excellence for various reasons, uh, and that people do their best work, their best learning, even their best playing, if we have to think about best playing, um, uh, when they love what they're doing. And that the more you reward people for doing something, the more they lose interest in the task itself. Uh, So, for example, the best way to destroy children's interest in reading is to give them a prize for reading a book. Because now they see reading as a tedious prerequisite. It's something I have to get through in order to get the goodie. And you're, they're less likely to read for pleasure than they were before you gave them a doggy biscuit for it. Um, but when you show people this evidence, you know, um, they don't respond by saying, oh, well, I guess maybe we don't have to worry so much about the rewards or who doesn't get one. But instead, uh, they just become more frenetic, and they say, in effect, Yeah, but they're not supposed to get a trophy, don't you see? They lost. And that's when you realize that there's an ideology driving this, not an empirical hypothesis about the effects. And I think basically it's a belief in conditionality. This is where economics intersects with theology. There's a belief that nothing good should come to you, even if you're a child, unless you have paid for it somehow. Mm. And if you didn't pay for it, if you didn't earn it, You shouldn't even get a little trinket that says, thanks for making an effort, Um, and you should not get uh, positive comments from people, and above all, you shouldn't feel so damn good about yourself. (laughs) And the second and related empirical hypothesis is, it's not just that you have to perform well to get a reward, it's that you have to defeat other people. And this is the American state religion, really that uh, the goal is not excellence, the goal is victory. Mm. And then again, I come back with the research saying competition actually undermines excellence. People tend to do their best when they're working with other people, not against them. And again, the response is basically, but you're sanctioning mediocrity. If everybody can do well, and that's where you realize that the second, what I call shadow value, besides conditionality, is... Um, scarcity. That by definition, excellence is something that all people cannot attain. That's why we have our playing fields, our workplaces, our classrooms, and saddest of all, even our families sometimes, set up so that I can succeed only if you fail. Mm. Our goal is to triumph over others. And so my, my it took me years to work this out, but You know, what I'm proposing is that the everybody gets a trophy rage is really predicated upon those deeply conservative views about human nature, about excellence and accomplishment and many other things. And what's really funny about this is that even people who are politically progressive on other issues have accepted, without thinking about it, these uh, this, this variant of social conservatism, um, it's become the mainstream wisdom. And so you can find loads of, you know, people who are railing against global climate change and, uh, and uh, supporting Obama, and you know their politics are on the port side for most things, sounding like they're on Fox News as soon as the conversation turns to children.
0: Yeah, Definitely. It is fascinating, um, But and I agree with most everything in your book, but I'm glad you started talking about trophies and competition because this is where I feel like you need to help me understand something, and we're going to talk about failure in a second too because I had a hard time comprehending that idea too, but there is, a, you know, I grew up competing in sports and things like that, and to this day I still play basketball at the morning YMCA, and I contend that that there is obviously a healthy competition that pushes human beings to excellence. And I feel like competition, like we need two different words to describe these two very different ideas, because there's no way that, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's obviously a place for competing against one another just to kind of push yourself to work a little bit harder in the exercise room or play basketball a little bit harder. No, I
2: I would respectfully disagree. Not only is that not obvious, I don't think it's even true. Uh, And I wrote, that was my very first book, uh called no contest the case against competition mm. the first chapter challenges the myth that it's inevitable or innate that we all have to compete and then the next chapter challenges the idea that it pushes us to excellence and higher achievement where the evidence surprisingly finds exactly the reverse and then there's a whole chapter just on play and games and alternatives that are really fun and don't involve me against you or us against them and part of sometimes we can do better today than we did yesterday by aiming for a higher goal i can try to make the next book i write uh... more compelling and persuasive than the last book i wrote uh... you can try to run faster uh, this month than you ran last month assuming that's important to you and so on that's not competition that's just trying to improve uh... your performance um, and, and then even better for most kinds of tasks is when a group of people work together. Sadly, in America, the only way we tend to think about cooperative groups performing well is when they're set against other groups so that uh, we have to cooperate in order to defeat another group of people cooperating. Whether that's on the the, the basketball court or whether we're talking about corporations uh, or sadly even countries. But Study after study after study finds that if I took a whole big bunch of people and I gave them all some task to do, particularly one that requires ingenuity, creativity, higher order thinking, and then I randomly um, divided the, the the group in half, and half of the people were just asked to do the task, and the other half were told this is a contest to see who's going to be who's going to do it best. You'll get a prize if you're best. Every single study finds that the people competing against one another do an inferior job. And in that book, I try to offer four or five reasons to explain this research, which has been found with a range of tasks with uh, males and females, uh, with children and adults and across cultures. You know, when I started writing that book, I was already persuaded that competition is not good for our psychological health. Uh, or for our relationship with each other, because we come to be envious of winners and contemptuous of losers, and more aggressive and cheating inevitably happens, not because there's something wrong with me, but because there's something wrong with the competitive structure. I already believed that. But even I accepted, I think, some of the premise of your question, which is that competition is useful or even necessary for pushing people to do their best. Um, And that if you got rid of competition, you might have happier, healthier people, but the trade-off is they would be less uh, uh, productive. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely wrong. The evidence shows that not only is competition not required for excellence, in most arenas, its absence is required for
1: excellence. Wow. Wow. And all this information is so amazing, um, just especially because what we love that you bring to the table is the research. You know, you're able to, because that's what everyone's always asking for. What about the research? It says this. And like you said, the research gets filtered out where we get one message instead of getting really the whole, you know, wealth of the research. And, and what it really, you know, breaks down to is, you know, what, what do we want for our children then? What are, what are we hoping to do? And in your last chapter in the book, you talk about raising a reflective rebel, Will you explain what that is? Yes. The premise
2: here is let's assume for a minute that all the conservatives who, again, represent the mainstream approach, you know, it's basically the only uh, uh, version of this stuff you're likely to see in the New York Times magazine or The Atlantic or most blogs and so on the idea that kids have uh, inflated self-esteem and what they need is more self-discipline and self-regulation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Let's assume for the moment that kids really were as self-centered and indulgent as we're being relentlessly told about millennials. Um, Why would we assume that the solution to that is a more traditional approach to parenting that emphasizes compliance? My argument is, even if that were true, what we would want to do is help kids think beyond themselves which means looking at the impact of all of our actions and our institutions on the well-being of everybody else too and if that's the case that the way to improve a given classroom or workplace or a whole society is to become a reflective rebel to be someone who questions what he or she is told rather than accepting it blindly or, th- or shrugging and saying well that's just life you know you gotta put up with it And to think in terms of standing up when the occasion calls for it and saying, uh, no, I can't go along with that. And to organize others and to be outraged by outrageous things. And so even if the premise is false and kids aren't particularly self-centered and there's no evidence to show that's more true of kids today than it was 20 or or 200 years ago, I still think it's a pretty good idea. Um, If we want kids who are not just about fitting in uh, and obeying orders, orders from their parents, their teachers, or their uh, eventual employers. We want kids who have the moral courage to try to leave this society a better place than they found it. And that means if we want kids to be willing uh, to question and challenge, that we have to welcome their questioning and challenging us because you... You can't raise a kid to comply automatically with parental dictates, and then expect that child to suddenly develop a conscience when the kid grows up.
0: Um, wow! Um, I don't even know where to go. Uh, my wife is looks like she's having a party over there because well, everything I... you're saying is it's funny. I I I think it's safe Let's to do say one
2: more, if we might, Just one more question.
0: <laughs> yeah, one more. Oh, wonderful! Um, so well, the last question is more. As far as the outlook on where we are in this world, I feel, and maybe I'm biased, I do feel like there is a movement towards unconditional parenting or the conscious parent. We had Shefali Sabari on our show a few months ago who talks a lot about the same things that you're talking about, that Kathy and I talk about on a weekly basis. Do you agree or disagree that, that there is a movement, albeit not as, as mainstream as we wish, that wasn't there maybe a generation ago?
2: I don't know. I'm the wrong person to ask about trends. Um, uh, I'm always skeptical of people who make uh, sweeping statements about the direction in which we're moving with respect to, to to anything. I think it takes a while before you can look back and identify a move, or you need some, some hard data. Mm-hmm. You know, and if, nobody's ever done uh, a a national, large-scale, representative national sample of parenting strategies. So we have no idea how many parents are actually permissive or punitive. Or neither uh, a third option that, as we've started talking about uh, is often overlooked. I mean we know how many parents endorse spanking or say they do that, uh, and the number is still appallingly high, but we don't really know you know and and there's always this tendency to uh, uh to to see what you want to see you know I'm, I'm I find that i'm susceptible to that too, especially if i The circles I run in, I disproportionately encounter people who kind of agree with me, at least about some stuff. You know, and, you know, I get, you know, people write me nice emails when they read my book and say, uh, yeah, I love this, and other people I know are doing it, but that, you know, it it sort of reminds me of the, the waning days of a lopsided presidential election when the... The losing candidate says, "You know, I can feel the momentum. (laughs) I see it in the crowds. You know, and it's it's a, it's a, it's a flawed, subjective uh, uh, illustration of 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 wishful thinking in many cases. But it might be true. You know, I can tell you. I can point to equally uh, humanistic and humane and forward-thinking." Views of children that have been present that were present fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, and my other reason for sounding, and I hate to end on this sort of wet blanket note but the the other reason i 'm a little skeptical is uh, when i when somebody says to me, Oh, you have to read so and so you know she she takes the same view of parenting that you do you 'll love her, and I read it and go, Oh my God, you know on the surface, yeah, but when you dig down a level, you know this person's just talking about logical consequences, which turns out to be a, a euphemism for punishment, or this person saying, don't punish, but reward, or, or this person is saying, here are some new techniques for getting compliance instead of questioning compliance as the goal. And I find that some of the uh, supposed allies who support the idea that we're really making progress are not really allies when you look at the deeper underpinnings of this. Some are, but some aren't. And so that's a, a long-winded... Uh, sort of uh, possibly crotchety way of saying. <laughs> no, you know, he, I'd like to think you're right, but I'm, I'm agnostic. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I appreciate your honesty. Um, so the name of the author is Alfie Cone. His website is alfiecone.org. That's A L F I E. Kohn.org. most of the ideas what we were talking about today came out of a book that he wrote that is new called the myth of the spoiled child challenging the conventional wisdom about children and parenting and then the other one that he brought up that looks like i have some reading to do called the unconditional parent unconditional parenting moving from rewards and punishment to love and reason so those are the two ways that if you're listening to this and you resonate with some of the things that alfie is saying there's a lot more there to be desired so alfie thank you very much for joining
2: us yeah,
1: thank you. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure, and thanks for both of your interest in these topics.